Hey there, everyone, and welcome to the History of Health. I'm your host, Connor Sexton, and I need to start this week by apologizing for taking so long to get this one out. I got some really bad family health news, and it kind of threw me for a loop, and I just didn't feel up to writing or recording for the past couple of weeks. But I'm about as emotionally recovered as I'm going to get, so I have an abridged episode for you all today, and we'll get back to our regular schedule two Tuesdays from now. So this week, we're going to continue our series on Dr. Jon Snow and cholera in London. We'll pick up where we left off last week with John starting his medical career in London. But before we get started, I need to remind everyone to like and subscribe to the History of Health and leave a nice review if you like what I do here. It really helps with the algorithm and helps grow the podcast. You can also support me on Patreon at patreon.com backslash history of health. I'm a totally independent project here, so you Patreon supporters are my only boss. And a big thank you to everyone who's already signed up, especially Peter and Khalil. So last week we were introduced to Dr. Jon Snow and followed him through his early medical career. Beginning in York and then in and around Newcastle, John was an apprentice and then an assistant to various surgeons and apothecaries, finally landing in London to complete his medical training. And we discussed his first experience with a disease that would help make him a world historical figure, cholera. We left off in the year 1838, with John about to hang up his shingle as a new doctor in London. Most medical students from the provinces went back to their home districts after completing their training, but John Snow was not like most medical students in many respects. He set up an office in one of the most densely populated areas of London and trusted that his skill would speak for itself. Another reason John stayed in London was that there was now a university that would grant a Doctor of Medicine degree even to someone who hadn't attended Oxford or Cambridge. Such an achievement would enable John to break the working-class glass ceiling and attend patients even in the upper classes. The area of London in which John settled has a fascinating history. Once home to many aristocrats, it was originally intended to be an upper-class estate like Mayfair. But most of the posh folks moved out when poor French immigrants began moving into the area in the 1860s, fleeing persecution in their own country. The area became known as London's French Quarter. By the time Snow came to live there, it was a mixed neighborhood, with some folks who were quite well-off living around the original Soho Square. These were lawyers, dentists, at least one publisher, and a condiment factory. And then there were also a lot of working poor people who had moved into and subdivided the previous aristocratic estates. We'll get into why these working poor folks left the rural areas they were from and came to London in a later episode. For now, let me just say that it's not quite the old story I was told about rural young people not wanting to be tied to the land and outdated traditions. That may have been part of it for some, but from what I've seen, it's mostly the story of a young person coerced into leaving their family because they were forced economically and legally, which is one way of saying they were essentially forced from their homes by rich people so that they could be forced to work in rich people's factories to make those rich people more rich. But we'll cover all that in detail in a later episode. The area of London in which John lived and worked was densely populated. The street John's office was on had nearly a person for every foot worth of street. 
The street was 600 feet long, and there were over 500 people living on it. I mentioned in the previous episode that there was a large gap between the number of elite physicians and the number of people needing elite care. But this wasn't the case for general practitioners like Snow. There were four other surgeons with equal qualifications as John within just a few doors of him. Competition was tight and turnover was high. A lot of would-be doctors gave up and headed back home. John stuck it out. He was able to secure appointments with four friendly societies, or sick clubs. These were voluntary associations workers would enter into, where each person would contribute a small amount every week that would go to cover the cost of medical treatment for everyone, when or if they needed it. Everyone pays a little bit, and everyone gets taken care of. Novel idea, huh? Anyway, at 25, John began to establish his medical career in London. He remained disciplined and dedicated nearly every waking hour to medicine, building a practice, attending medical society meetings, and conducting private research. It's possible, but not certain, that his Uncle Charles helped him get by in these early years. We know for sure that Charles visited London often, and the two spent a good deal of time together. Uncle Charles's help notwithstanding, John was able to build a practice even though he apparently didn't have a very pleasant bedside manner. He wasn't the kind of person to sugarcoat things for his patients. He was going to give his assessment of the case and sorry not sorry for your feelings. According to a contemporary, John was too much of a skeptic to become popular and rich by giving his patients the prescriptions they wanted in place of the treatments he thought they needed but his lack of a soothing hand was more than made up for by his razor-sharp mind, which was why he never lacked patience and became the first one to call for many colleagues when they came across a difficult case. One of John's continued areas of focus was midwifery. He absolutely excelled in the care and delivery of babies and used this specialty to bolster his practice. It was time-consuming work and deliveries didn't generate large fees, but at a time when women in England usually had more than six children, it was a sound way to build a practice, and it was a fountain of experience for him, and he seems to have genuinely enjoyed the work. What he didn't really enjoy was hanging out with the hard-drinking folks who lived around him. He was a teetotaler, and he would tell people that they were poisoning themselves. So, not the best guy to have around the bar. But the Westminster Medical Society became John's refuge in London. This is where he was able to stretch his intellectual legs, try things out, make arguments without worrying as much about his reputation, and generally be more open and honest with his ideas. Although the society wasn't a complete safe haven, there was a generational gap within the society, with older members being generally less well-educated and less acquainted with advances that had occurred since they had received their training. This is long before the days of continuing education. These men, and they were all men, believed that medicine was all about observation, and that only when a doctor had witnessed enough cases would he be able to distinguish dropsy from dyspepsia and decipher how the human economy had been disrupted. We're all familiar with the humors of the bubonic plague era, but by the 1830s, this perspective had evolved into language like the peculiar state of the system might have been induced by intemperance. I think I just slipped into a Scottish accent. Anyway. Younger members like Snow had adopted a new medical perspective that had come out of the Enlightenment and been advanced throughout continental Europe. One of the major shifts in thinking that came was the idea that specific diseases were connected to particular organs or tissues in the body. This shift in thinking will help John in the future 
when he tracks cholera to the small intestine. This is another example of how our hero could never have emerged without epochal shifts in thinking that involved thousands or millions of people. The younger members of the Westminster Medical Society were also more connected to their colleagues in Europe. These connections were made through young doctors with the money to travel and through medical journals. Previous generations had been much more reliant on the master-to-apprentice route of information transfer. They simply didn't have access to the type of rapid information sharing that medical journals enabled. Snow was a voracious reader, and he kept up with every advance. The older gentlemen of the medical society may have lacked a certain level of competence, but that didn't always produce a corresponding lack of confidence. On the contrary, many clung to their outdated views, lashing out at anyone who tried to move things forward along different lines. Snow often provoked their ire with his insistence upon using experimentation, laboratory results, and those newfangled statistics in place of good old-fashioned observation. When presenting one of his early papers, John was attacked by one of these sticks in the mud. He was discussing a case involving a 12-year-old girl who had died of scarlet fever. And for all of you out there like me who weren't immediately familiar with scarlet fever, it was one of the diseases every parent feared their child might contract before antibiotics were discovered in the 1940s. The name is derived from the distinctive pink rash that develops after the initial symptoms of a sore throat or headache. Today it's far less common, but there have been recent outbreaks in Hong Kong and the UK, and more virulent strains have been found. John Snow's discussion of the case largely focused on the medical research that was available to him. It sounds absurd now, but this was a departure from the norm at the time, and he argued that the kidneys may be particularly affected by scarlet fever, which they are, and that bloodletting and purgation should be used as treatment, which it should not. One of the old guard immediately objected, not to the bloodletting, but to John's diagnosis relating to the kidney. He blandly stated he was unconvinced by the laboratory findings and that everything John described could all be explained by a peculiar state of the system induced by intemperance and a variety of other causes. How difficult it must have been to argue against people who could write off your scientific evidence with vague expressions of an upset system. Reminds me of climate deniers, honestly. But John persevered and continued to hone his experimental as well as his rhetorical skills. Another way John contributed to the medical community in London was through writing. Two of his first four publications were letters to the editor of a weekly medical journal called The Lancet. The editor at the time was the founder, Thomas Wakeley. Wakeley was a giant of his time, and the journal he founded remains popular to this day. Snow's letters mainly refuted and corrected what a previous author had stated. For example, he referenced his own previous experimental experience with cadavers prepared with arsenic to explain the risks of its use. The editor, Wakeley's response, was as revealing as it was gratuitous, merely stating that the author in question had reported no ill effects from his arsenic-treated cadavers. Case settled. You see... Mr. Wakeley was old school even in 1839. He was one of the folks who considered medicine to be a science of observation, and so he was ready and willing to toss out Snow's experimental evidence. This reliance on the observer opened the door to all kinds of quackery, and John was not the type of young doctor to patiently listen to his elders, even when he knew they were wrong. He was undeterred by Wakeley's snub, 
and sent another letter disputing a certain Mr. Goodman's description of how the heart works. He used the most advanced book on physiology of the time to poke holes in Goodman's reasoning and generally took apart his argument piece by piece, explaining along the way how the heart actually works. I don't think he was trying to be mean or dunk on Mr. Goodman. I don't think that's how Snow's mind worked. He was just like, that's wrong. This is why. And this is the correct way to look at it. We don't know how Mr. Goodman took it, but Mr. Wakeley seems to think that John had gone too far. The next time John writes a letter to the editor, Wakeley publishes the following notice instead of the letter. Quote, The remarks of Mr. John Snow on a recent communication from M.H. on the physiology of respiration have been received. We cannot help thinking that Mr. Snow might better employ himself in producing something than to criticizing the productions of others. End quote. This was totally uncalled for and unfair by Wakeley. Snow had produced experiments, and his criticisms of others were based on recent scientific publications in an effort to move medicine forward. They weren't personal attacks designed to increase his reputation. And Wakeley carried this bad blood even after Snow dies in 1858. The Lancet published just a curt obituary that didn't even mention Snow's work on cholera. They finally corrected their mistake 155 years later, in 2013, with a massively overdue but compelling rewrite of the obituary. We don't know what Snow thought of this beef, but we can judge from his actions that he stuck to his guns. He didn't send any more letters to the editor for the next few years, and from then on, he would publish in the London Medical Gazette as opposed to the Lancet. John then used the next few years to explore areas of special interest to him, especially respiration. He studied the mechanics of breathing and ways of restoring it when it was interrupted. He examined the properties of inhaled toxins and gas exchange at the tissue level. All of these long hours of investigation and research and trial and error will eventually pay off for him and his patients when anesthesia takes off. His understanding of the factors that stimulate or depress breathing will make him one of the most sought-after physicians in London. His interest in respiration also led to his first confrontation with business interests. Some chemists in the 1830s and 40s were trying to convince the public that it was safe to use charcoal-burning stoves without a chimney in their homes. Burning charcoal inside without proper ventilation results in carbon monoxide poisoning. The famous French writer Emile Zola died from this exact kind of carbon monoxide poisoning when his ventilation failed and we have no way of knowing how many people in England were killed from following this advice. Snow argued against this ridiculous practice, citing a study involving burning candles in experimental atmospheres. He didn't care if people could make a quick buck by selling the stoves. He cared about the results. In fact, all of his investigations had this practical aspect to them. He didn't look into anything without thinking, how will this affect people, or how can this help people? From his first investigations of arsenic poisoning through to his cholera research, he always prioritized people and believed wholeheartedly that the practice of medicine should be a public service, not a service for the highest bidder. While Snow was building his private practice and fighting quackery, he continued to advance his education and credentials. He passed the Bachelor of Medicine exam in 1843 and received his Doctor of Medicine degree from the University of London in 1844. John dabbled with teaching forensic medicine, but the school he taught at closed within a few years of his start, and he didn't try to resume his post at another school. 
Now 10 years after graduating from the Hunterian School of Medicine in 1846, John was unknowingly on the cusp of his next grand adventure. In the intervening years, he had gained significant scientific skill, some professional recognition, and the highest level of education and certification he could. But as 1847 approached, he remained unknown outside of London Medical Societies and the working poor he cared for. This would all change with the discovery of ether anesthesia. And that's where we're going to have to leave it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and take care of each other. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.